Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, it's good to see you here. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in a couple places. One is Matthew chapter 20, and then we're going to be in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 12. And I want to be honest, as I walk into this topic, we're talking about idolatry. And realize that's why the prophets were rejected. I think why Jesus was crucified, idolatry. When you touch somebody's idol, the thing that they're worshiping in the the place of God, the reaction tends to be pretty negative. They get angry. They get mad. They feel threatened. And so today, I'm going to talk about the one idol we don't want to talk about in the church. Now, last week was money, so you're wondering, what is it? And it's politics. Uh Uh-oh. Right, I'm in trouble. So let me say something right in the beginning. If you leave here angry today, but the message was biblical, maybe God's saying something. If you leave angry today and it's not biblical, It's not based in scripture. That's a good reason to be angry. You may need to find another church. But if you leave today and you're angry, but it's biblical, maybe God wants you to wrestle with something. And understand, I am not an expert in politics. I'm not an expert in nationalism and power. Those are not my expertise. I focus on scripture. So what I'm trying to do is not make connections to your political party or your agenda or your president. Okay, so can you just take that weight off my shoulders so that I don't feel like I'm carrying that, please, right now? Can you take, okay, here you go. I'm giving it to you. And you're carrying your own thoughts. So don't read into what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. You can come talk to me later if you wondered if I was saying that. But this is a very weighty idol and politics is the religion of America. It really is. It's what gets most of our attention, most of our focus, most of our anger, most of our, all of it. And so as we jump into this, we're walking into a space that touches our heart and we all love our country. I mean, patriotism is not a bad thing. Now, patriotism is a bad thing when it replaces God, but patriotism is preference, gratitude, that I live in the country that I live. I'm grateful for the country that I live in and I want it to be at its best just as I want my kids to be at their best and my neighborhood school and my church. I want all of that to be at its best. Likewise, I want my nation, understand, to be at its best. And we all have a vision of what that looks like. And that vision of what it looks like is this word we're gonna talk about called nationalism. Nationalism is not the worship of a nation. Nationalism is about the identity you put on the nation. And when you think about your country, there's certain identity markers. You think about your country in a certain way. It it stands for this. It represents this. And that's what nationalism is. And all of us kind of walk into the idol of nationalism and politics with a different set of weights because all of us view the nation and what it stands for, why, why we find it valuable, what we want to protect. We carry different ideas of what that looks like. So that's, uh, that's the starting point, okay? So now let's go and kind of hear some Jesus 
so we can jump into this. This is Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Matthew 20, verse 25. And Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now it shall not be among you, but whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, I thank you. Your kingdom showed up in service to those who were enemies of the cross, enemies of your kingdom. We were wild. We were yet sinners. We were darkened in our understanding. We did not submit to the truth of God. Instead, Jesus, through your truth, through your grace, through your power, you open the eyes of the blind. That is us. You set the captive free. That is us. And you proclaim the day of liberation, and that day of liberation is here in the gospel and in Jesus and in King Jesus, whose kingdom comes in service to those who reject it. And so help us to walk through this, Father. Teach us and direct us in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to show you a few images real quick, just to remind us of where we are. When we talk about idols, if you want to put up that iceberg, Bella... There's two ideas about idols. There's surface idols. We talked about this last week. And we talked about money is a surface idol. But beneath the surface, there's different heart motivations that are directed towards money. And I confess to you, money for me is safety. It's security. It gives me comfort, right? That my life is in control. And if I have this, then I'm safe. Now, for other people, money could be power. It could be influence. It could be approval. Well, when it comes to the idol of nationalism, if you want to change the slide, the same reality is true. Nationalism, or the worship of nation, the worship of politics, is an idol. Now, it's not the object of your worship. You're looking to your nation to give you something that only God can give. We exchange the truth of God, Paul says in Romans, for a lie, and we worship the creation, right? Something that's not supposed to be worshiped, like nations, or presidents, or political parties. And we exchange the truth of God and we look to those things to give us influence and power, approval, a sense of I'm okay, comfort, pleasure, control. And so when we think about politics in our nation, you have to ask yourself, okay, what's beneath the surface that I'm looking to get from this that God has promised to give me? And unless I get it from God, I'm going to find it in something else. Does that make sense? Because you need these things. You need these things from God, and if you don't get that sense of identity from God, calling from God, security from God, you're going to go someplace else. And in our nation, the story of politics rises up. Now, you may not realize this, but just a a few weeks ago, a little over two weeks, I think, marked the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, February 22nd. See, and when Russia invaded Ukraine, most of the world, most of the world were outraged. This is unjust. This is a power grab. But what's interesting is 
70, when it started a year ago, 70% of the people in Russia supported the war. Now, how do you get that high a number for a war that seems to be a power grab that seems to be unjust? And part of the answer to that question is religion. I don't know if you followed the storyline of Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church. If you want to put that picture up of Putin, and this is Patriarch Kyrill. I think that's how they pronounce it. I keep wanting to say Krill. It's not Krill. I think that's like a little thing in the ocean. That's not a guy in the ocean. This is Kyrill. And he's the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church. Well, to get a war supported by 70% of the people, you need a story. And sometimes the most compelling story is that God is on our side and there's an evil out in the world. And unless we destroy this evil, God's divine law and his divine plan cannot be accomplished. Well, that's what they came up with. Now, this may be surprising because Russia is not known for its faith in God. And Putin grew up in an atheistic home. And then he joined the KGB. And I don't know if you realize that they don't have prayer meetings at the KGB. The KGB persecuted and killed Christians. That's where Putin learned his tactics, his way of seeing the world. And so Putin is not a theist, he's very, but he is very superstitious. From those that I read, he has this metaphysical, superstitious, naturalism, numerology that he believes in. So when Russia invaded Georgia, I don't know if you know this, I didn't know this. They invaded Georgia on 8-08-2008 because he believes in the superstition of numbers. Now, when did they invade Ukraine? 02-22-2022. So watch out for 03-03-2033. Okay, that's gonna be a bad date. But he believes in this numerology. He believes in this superstition. He is not a man of faith. He is a man of power. He's a conqueror. But he's, he's smart. He's wise. He knows that the story of religion can motivate people to accept what is unacceptable. And so he gets together with Kyril. And they sit down and devise a plan. And he says, listen, I need your support. And this happened over a long period of time. And Kyril endorsed Putin's war. And then in March of 2022, just after the war began, Pope Francis tried to intervene. And here's a, a picture of that moment. It was on Zoom. And he, he spoke to Kyril through Zoom. And he said, listen, Kyril, you cannot endorse this war. It's unjust. And here's some of the words that he said to Kyril. He said, the church must not use the language of politics, but the language of Jesus. Brother, we are not clerics of the state. The patriarch cannot transform himself into Putin's altar boy. And that has stuck. That's strong words. Cairo has been called Putin's altar boy, saying you cannot endorse this war. Now, he ignored it. And why do I bring this up? Because sometimes we can't see the way that we blind religion and politics in our own life, in our own country. We have to see how it's happening someplace else. When you see how it's happening someplace else, sometimes that gives you a little window 
and how it happens thus. So I wanna play this short video and I want you to listen to the language that's used around the war, but specifically how God views this war and who are the people who are evil in the world, according to Cairo and Putin. So watch, watch this video. The head of Russia's Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, has supported Putin's war in Ukraine from the start. He described those opposing the invasion as the forces of evil. Now, this has angered many Ukrainians who say Kirill has given his blessings to Putin to kill his fellow Slavs and people of the same faith. So far, Russian attacks have damaged as many as 92 churches and places of worship in Ukraine. There have also been increasing reports of attacks against the clergy there. Russia's war, it seems, also has a religious dimension. Much of this religious conflict has been fueled by the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow, and in particular, by its head, Patriarch Kirill. Long before the start of the invasion, Kirill positioned himself and his church as strong ideological allies of the Kremlin. Kirill has repeatedly cast Russia as a defender of divine law against the forces of evil, which he identifies as emanating from Western democracies. Kirill's proximity to the Kremlin goes hand in hand with Putin's commitment to the church. In 2012, the Patriarch described Putin's political project as a miracle of God. Over the next few years, he became a staunch supporter of the Kremlin's agenda. In a sermon in March this year, Kirill rebuked members of his own church who opposed the war. We will never make peace, he said, with those who violate the law of God. For Kirill, the invasion of Ukraine is a religious crusade aimed at defending divine law. Those who oppose it are therefore enemies of God. The Kremlin and its forces have effectively been granted a religious stamp of approval for their actions. We will never make peace with those who violate the law of God. The invasion of Ukraine is a religious crusade aimed at defending defined law. And those who oppose it are therefore enemies of God. Now, I imagine as you hear that, you can see the inconsistencies. We can see in others what we sometimes struggle to see in ourselves. Now, what's happening in this storyline? There's a storyline of fear. There's an identification of an enemy. And when you identify an enemy in faith terms, you identify your God. Because your God is always the one who is going to defeat the enemy. And when fear is driving things, your enemies become apparent, and so do the idols that we worship. Because our idols are often here to protect us from what we fear the most. This is God's war, Kirill would say. And 70% of the Russian people agreed and this is not a new story. Realize this has been going on for centuries, back in the 12th century during the Crusades. Christians and Muslims killed each other in the name of their God. 
Because if I am fighting for my God, then I need to cleanse the world of those who are unholy. This is what God would have us to do. And we saw that actually in, surprisingly, some of the most secular places like Nazi Germany. I don't know if you realize this, this is a belt buckle from the 1940s and 30s. I, I can't read German, so I have to trust that the translation is right. But this was a belt buckle, as you can tell, there's a swastika that the SS wore as they were slaughtering Jews. And it says, God with us. Because in the Nazi mind, the Jews were the enemy. They were what was destroying the German economy. And so if they are the enemy, then our God is Germany. It's Hitler. It's the Nazis. And we see this over and over again. We also see this in the Bible. If you want to now go to 1 Kings chapter 12, we see this same kind of religious storyline. The identification of an enemy. There's fear in the hearts of the people. Our nation is in trouble. Our influence is dwindling. And because of that, here are the enemies, and therefore I find a God to believe in that is going to support my fears and defeat the enemies. And this is in 1 Kings 12. Now, at this point, if you want to put up that slide of the two nations, Bella, at this time, the nation of Israel, it's, it says Israel in the north, but the entire nation, Judah and Israel, were once Israel. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? And what happened is the tribes split. This was after David and Solomon and United Kingdoms. Ten tribes go up to the north. They got a pretty big territory. And two tribes go down to the south. Now, in the north, the king was this guy, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had a great deal of territory, but you know what he didn't have? What he didn't have was that city. Do you see it? It's kind of important. It's the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is where the promises of God, is where his presence dwelt, right? I mean, he had the temple. It's kind of important. It's where people traveled to, to worship. You would sacrifice the festivals, the feasts, the prophecies, God's promises, all anchored in Jerusalem. And yet Jeroboam believed that Israel was the true nation and that Judah, they were, they were evil, even though these are our brothers, but he was afraid. And so what he had to do was to get together with his Kyril. We'll find out he raised up his own prophet too. And he had to create a storyline. A storyline of fear, of evil, and a false god. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Here's, here's the story. Because Jeroboam needs to protect his power. So this is what happens. And then Jeroboam built Shechem. So that's a town. And this is to rival, remember, Jerusalem in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, so he's thinking, he's dreaming, fear is overwhelming him, and he's thinking about his nation and what he wants to protect and his national identity. And he says, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, which means the southern kingdom. If the people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple at the Lord, remember at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn against their Lord to Rehoboam, the bad guy, the wrong nation, the wrong team, the king of Judah, and they will kill me. 
and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What do you call that? Fear. I'm going to lose power. I'm losing influence. Now, has it happened yet? No. Has anything changed? No. The mere idea, I'm losing influence, I'm losing power, I've gotta do something about this. Because if everyone keeps going to Jerusalem, that's Rehoboam's country. He's the president, he's the king. I'm gonna lose influence and everyone's gonna leave team Rehoboam and go join team, which one? I got those backwards. See, that's to help you follow this sermon. It's very confusing. It goes the other way. Anyways, you get it. And so what does he do? He raises up a false god. Verse 28. And you would think that the nation of Israel by now would have figured out this is not a good idea, but watch what happens. Verse 28. And so the king took counsel. So he's talking to somebody, religious leaders, and made two golden calves. This seemed like a good idea. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem, guys, long enough, and behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now, Bethel is the furthest north and Dan is the furthest southern city. And he also made temples of high places and appointed priests along among the other people who were not the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offers sacrifices on the altar. And so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar, again, that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel. And he went up to the off altar to make offerings. What's going on? He's afraid. And so he sets up this alternate story. Now, again, you would think the nation of Israel would say, we're not bowing down to a calf again. But this time it's two. And so that must be better. And they've totally forgotten their own history. And, their, and it seems silly. Who would bow down to something like that? And yet you watch this story in Russia and you think that seems silly. It's only silly when you're not in it. It's only silly when the fear isn't something that you're afraid of, that the power isn't something you're trying to hold on to. And he creates this whole new form of worship. New prophets, right? New priests. And I don't know if you notice this, but this happens every time power is in jeopardy. We'll find somebody to speak for God. Because we're going to find that Amos is going to come along and he's going to walk around Israel and say, this is nuts, guys. Golden calves, temples, what, what are you doing? These are high, this is idolatry, but what happens in any movement? If you think even of our own nation, the revolution, there were loyalist prophets and pastors. Did you know that? And then there were revolutionary prophets and pastors. Now we have a, a favorite in that battle, but think of the Civil War. Do you know there were prophets and pastors in the South who said the North is, what, evil. And they raised them up to speak the, the voice of the, and then there were those in the north. Now we have favorites in that and we think we know who was right. 
And it happened in Germany. It happens, it happens in this story. We raise up a prophet who will protect our fear and our power. And Israel goes along with it. I mean, we would think they wouldn't buy it, but they did. And what drove the outcome? What always drives the outcome and what's driving the outcomes today, it's fear. When you watch the news, you're watching stories of fear. Certainly those partisan news organizations, which almost is all of them. If you've found one that's not somewhat partisan, I don't know. I don't watch a lot, so. It's fear. Alert. 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 Have you seen it? I know I'm talking to somebody. Come on now. They're not getting millions of viewers for nothing. All across there, alert, watch out. Here's what's happening. Here's what's in jeopardy. Here's the storyline. Here's what's wrong, right? Why? It's a drug. Do you know that produces chemicals in your brain? I gotta find out what the solution is. And I'm not saying there aren't things in our country to be worried about. I understand that. I'm not denying that reality. But some people will use that as a drug to worship a center of power. And it, this is true to just to human nature. It's why in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, do not fear what they fear. So think of our country, think of our nation, think of our, your political tribe. Don't fear what they fear. Why? Do not let your hearts be troubled. When you fear, you set apart something as Lord that's going to protect your fear. And what does he say? But in your hearts, this is what, what's the guy in the north again? <laughs> Jeroboam. That's what he should have done. He should have set apart God as Lord. Instead, what did he do? He set apart his national identity as Lord. I got to hold on to this. I got to protect this. And the same thing is true for us. When fear comes in, that's the opportunity for an idol to step into that place and say, I'll, I'll protect you. And we conflate the worship of God with the worship of something that's false. And we can't see the real God any longer. And so Amos shows up, and in Amos chapter 7, he's walking around. He says, this is absolutely nuts. How could you support this kind of war? How could you support this kind of agenda? Amos chapter 7, verse 11. And thus Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. He's warning them. This ain't going to end well. And Israel will go into exile and away from the land. Guys, if you don't repent, if you don't see that you're putting your heart in the wrong things, it's, it's going to crash. It's going to fall apart. And so, so what does he do? What does Jeroboam do is he raises up his own guy. This is God's guy. And realize, guys, listen, when it comes to prophets, we always think we're the people who would listen to them. I, I, don't, I doubt that. I strongly doubt that. Do you realize that prophets are only listened by, it's called the remnant, and that means small. The prophets in the Old Testament, for the most part, were hated. And they weren't just cast out by the north. Judah in the south, they had issues with them too, and they would reject them. And so when your prophet perfectly lines up with your political agenda, come on. And I'm not saying there aren't things that God cares about. Absolutely, I care about them too. I'm not saying that. But when you're afraid and you feel like you're losing power, there will be people that will stand up and say, that's exactly the exact 
outline of what God cares about. And if you follow me, I will take care of you. And we conflate that with God. But the prophets, for the most part, were rejected. And so what happens is Jeroboam goes, I'll get my guy. Amaziah. And so watch this in verse 12. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, oh, you jerk, is what he's saying. Go, flee away from the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary. And it's a temple of the kingdom. What often happens when fear raises in our heart is we make our little K kingdoms the big K kingdom. And we exchange it with God's kingdom. And we would say, if God was here, this is exactly how he would do it. And then we take prophets that will endorse that. And it perfectly lines up. And that's what we do. This is natural. Understand, this is just human nature. We take our little K kingdoms, the things we care about, and these things are valuable to us and they're important. They're worth defending, protecting, and speaking up for. But when we put them in the place of God, it gets weird. And even the non-believers around us go, what, what, what are we worshiping? What is the God that we're following? What are we defending? You know, when you attack, and here's the idea, when you attack the wrong enemy, I think there's a slide on this, you're in danger of worshiping the wrong God. Think about that. When you attack and identify the wrong enemy, you are in danger of worshiping the wrong God. Apply this to Nazi Germany. Who is the enemy? Who's making everything wrong with our country? It's these Jews. They've totally ruined our economy. And so if they are the enemy, then naturally we would support the God. Cairo, Russia, who's the enemy? We gotta find an enemy. Because see, if you find an enemy, then your God will suddenly come up and destroy that enemy. And so the enemy is the West. The enemy is Ukraine. And who is our God? It's Putin's Russia. We see that. What's happening in this story? Jeroboam. Who's the enemy? It's Judah. It's Rehoboam. So who's our God? We raise up a false God who will protect our national interests and protect what we value the most. This is the human condition. So here's some questions. And again, I'm not speaking directly to your little party or your vision. Understand that. I'm not trying to walk into what you're thinking. I'm just trying to sit in this and go, wow, this hits me. This hits me because I, I love my country. I'm concerned about its future. I'm concerned about influences, but I don't want to replace my God and his kingdom with a kingdom that I want to protect on earth because those two are different things. So here's the questions. What enemy causes you the greatest emotional reaction? Who are they? What group? What person? What agenda? What policies? Just create in you this reaction. I hate them. And it's okay. We're in church. We can admit that. We're, you're a human being. There's somebody that, that just stirs hatred. And there's a narrative, there's a story that's fueling that hatred, and we all have that. Let me just ask you, who is that? 
Because if you identify that, then you can start identifying the nature of your false god. Because what god has been created to fight that enemy? See the second question? And to address your fear. And here's the most important question, right? Is that God the God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? And in how Jesus says we should approach our enemy? What is it that has a hold of your heart? And are we turning? Because here's the thing. Trusting in a false God is safer than trusting in Jesus. Israel loved to run to the gods of the nations because they made sense. They were power, right? What did God say to Israel? Just trust me. But we want a king. It's not gonna go well. But we want a king. It's not gonna work out. But we want a king. Here's your king. And what happened? Conflict between worshiping the king and worshiping God was the story of Israel. And the king would say, hey, I know you're afraid. I know you're losing power, losing money, losing influence. Just follow me. This is God's way. And their hearts, their hearts pursued it. Nicholas, uh, not Nicholas, Al Walters is a Christian philosopher. And here's how he described the struggle that we are in. He said, the great danger, the great danger is to single out some aspect or phenomena of God's good creation and identify it rather than the alien intrusion of sin as the villain in the drama of human life. Do you hear what he's saying? The problem in life is, is sin. The solution is God and salvation and grace. But what we do is we identify some other villain in life as the primary. And I'm not saying there aren't wicked and evil people. Scripture talks about that. But he's talking about the primary. And this is something that's been vicariously identified as the body and its passions. That was Plato. Culture and distinction from nature. Institutional authority, especially the state and the family. Technology. Management techniques. The Bible's unique in its uncompromising rejection of all attempts to identify a part of creation as either, notice, the villain or the savior. Scripture does not identify the enemy as a part of creation, nor the savior as something in creation that can rescue us. Instead, Jesus identified who the savior was and who the enemy, in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, one of the few places where Jesus addresses why he had to, to die. And he outlines it. And he gives us three, three outlines. And you can put that up. There's three main reasons. He said, I had to die. One, I have to glorify my father. And he says in verse 27, this is John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, meaning the cross. And verse 28 says, no, father. father. Father, glorify your name. And the father says, I will. Meaning you're going to the cross. The cross was a means of glorifying God. But then in verse 30, and then Jesus answered, why am I going to the cross now? The judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Here's the true enemy. And here's the third idea. So first, the father will be glorified as I go to the cross. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And then as I am lifted up, which is an image of the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus knew who the enemy was, so he knew how to, deal with those who are opposing him in this life. Can we rewind that? 
He knew who the true enemy was, so he knew how to address the people who were in opposition to him in this life. Did Jesus rail against Caesar in his small groups, in his Bible studies? I'm talking to somebody. I know I'm talking to me. No. Did he have a problem with Caesar? Absolutely. This was a ruthless, cruel, brutal nation. And yet his problem, he says, is not with you. Listen, Pilate, you wouldn't be here unless God gave you authority. You got nothing on me. Was it the religious leaders? Did he have words with the religious leaders? Yeah. There is time where you need to address wicked people and shame them into life. That's true. Now, that's not everybody. Most people are garden variety sinners, okay? That's what we are. There are those that are wicked that, that even when you show them their sin, they're fools. They don't wake up. That's the religious leaders. And Jesus had some harsh words. Are there time for, yes, there's absolutely. But did Jesus make the religious leaders the target of his focus? No. No, he said there is something behind Rome and behind these religious leaders and he is the ruler, he is Satan. He is the deceiver. We sometimes forget that the people we see as opposition are also enslaved as we were. And the only way that this enslavement will be broken is through a spiritual resurrection for the eyes of the blind to be open. Jesus, John 18, 36, he said this. And this is a good reminder because sometimes we make our little K kingdoms God's big K kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, my disciples would have been fighting. If it was Rome, they would grab swords. If it was the religious leaders, they would throw them out. But instead, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. What is Jesus' prayer for us? How are we supposed to live today in Evergreen as if we were in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the announcement that Jesus' victory is enough and that God is king. And when we live to the kingdom of God, we live with his vision of the future in the presence. Now, if my goal is simply to defend my little K kingdom, the kingdom of God and its lifestyle doesn't make sense. You're not gonna win for your nation living out Jesus' teachings. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If they ask you to a one mile, go two. And that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because if I do that, my cause is gonna lose. But what's the cause? I want that person who opposes me to see the power of God's kingdom. How does that happen? By the exchange of power? No, by grace, self-sacrifice, and service. It's the way of the cross. And I'm sorry, that's the way of Jesus. There is a time to speak truth and to be confrontational. There's a time for that. But the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. The way he overcame was through his own death and sacrifice, and not for those who had it together, but for those who rejected him and opposed him. And he saw behind them a greater power that had enslaved them, and only his death and his resurrection and the grace and the love of God could wake them up. But we keep yelling at them, and it's not waking anybody up. And the question becomes, what God are we protecting? What God do we worship? And, and this isn't easy, guys. I, I'm not telling you that I got it together, okay? I don't. But King Jesus is what we are about at Bergen Park Church. No other kingdom is worthy of your life, 
your devotion, your love and sacrifice than King Jesus. And there are things in our nation that we care about and God cares about, and we need to be engaged in those things, but we do not need to exchange the kingdom of God for the kingdom of this world. Instead, we need to live as servants of the true king. And when we do that, what it does, I know it takes time, I know it's slow, I know it's hard, it opens the eyes of the blind. Because just like Israel, we wanna grab a big army, right? I, I, don't, want, I don't want 300 of the worst I want 3,000 of the best soldiers, God. And God says, no, 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 no. We're gonna take the weakest, the smallest, the dumbest, the most insignificant, but they're the ones that have faith in me. And through faith in me, nothing is impossible. God is calling us to trust him. But when you are walking in fear and there's a message of fear that's constantly hitting you, it's very hard to trust in God. Can we admit that? What would it look like just to say, I love my nation, I love my country, but God, I wanna exchange this kingdom for your kingdom and allow the, the truth of Jesus' teaching to be a vision for how we live life in evergreen as it is in heaven. Hey, I don't know where God is, is stirring you in this. I know this is a challenging message for me, but the way we're gonna respond this morning is through repentance and faith. It's called communion. Communion's an opportunity for us to repent. Say, Father, here's what really matters to me. Here is where I'm afraid. This is what I wanna protect. But God, I, I wanna cast my burdens on you because you care for me. And show me, Father, where I'm replacing the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God, where I can't see you clearly because of my fear and what I'm holding on to. We wanna let that go. He's good, right? And it's frightening at times to give that to him. But as we celebrate communion, it's an opportunity to surrender our allegiance to the true king, the one king who will always be victorious. And so if you didn't grab the communion elements as you came in, would you do that right now? You can find those that are available up front. They're also available in the back. And we just wanna spend some time and maybe God's done nothing with this message for you. That's okay. Would you just do and address whatever God is speaking to you this morning and let's spend some time in his presence with him. Mm -hmm.